So I want to welcome everyone this evening. If people would keep the lights on in the back, please. Thank you. Uh, to start off, I want to thank Carrie for uh, running the show last week, although I haven't seen her uh, on the web. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that whenever that talk comes up. Uh, I'm sure that she fulfilled your expectations. <clears throat> uh, but uh, to have people like Carrie, who will be from time to time uh, slotting in for me uh, as I uh, pull back as the only voice in Sims is an important, is an important uh, encouragement forward for those people. It's difficult to, to speak in front of 200 people uh, when you haven't, when you aren't used to the numbers. And so to give them uh, your validation, to give them your uh, attention, and to compliment them if you think it was a good talk. It's very helpful. So thanks to Carrie. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to spend another week uh, discussing uh, Sankara's, the second, uh, the second link in dependent origination. Uh, remembering that Sanskara is a Pali or Sanskrit word that means together makers. That is, this is what comes to, this is what is made when certain conditions come together. Uh, and uh, what we're talking about coming together and being made are mental formations. Mental formations are what we experience in mind. All of the different attitudes and thoughts and ideas and emotions, all of it. The whole lay of the land up there mentally is what we're talking about. So I thought, well, it might be worth a second talk, <laughs> given the fact that it covers everything that we might think, feel, or do. So uh, I, hope, I hope you find it worthy. And of course, the homework is an important invitation towards understanding this, not only this talk, but in general, uh, the homeworks that we put up there are the wise action in relationship to the subject. You take the subject in intellectually, and then you bring it into the fiber of your being, into the into the cells of your body through the actual movement of and participation in the topic in your daily life. And so that's the value of the intervening week and then the course of the discussion week deepens that process, etc. So that's why we're doing what we're doing and I hope people find it useful. Now I'd like to begin this evening uh, by just uh, thinking of the spiritual journey uh, as living in a fog bank for a moment. I try to find different ways to express the metaphors uh, that um, represent uh, what we're talking about here. And, and I think a fog bank does that pretty well. It, when we're living in a fog bank, you, you don't see much. But if you've only lived in a fog bank your whole life, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're not seeing. You just know that your sight is rather gray and limited. Uh, you don't have any idea that there may be more space, uh, more clarity out there than what you have lived your life within. And of course, that's analogous to living our life only within our thinking, only within our thoughts. They, all that is reflected back from the world is what we think about the world. Nothing else can get in. So it's a very dense fog. Now, the spiritual journey, like in a fog bank, if you walk through the fog and you keep walking for a while with the intention to seeing if there's another side to this world, you have, first have to have the intention and the disposition to want to get out of the fog. You have to see that there's a limitation in living in the bank, and that's difficult enough to rally or to encourage uh, that motivation for us, but let's say we do. And so we start walking out of the fog bank 
into unknown territory because we've always lived within the fog. We think of the world as being completely covered by that. But as we start moving out of the fog, light starts penetrating the density of that gray. At first, it's negligible. After we've walked a, a certain number of a certain distance, light, it begins to thin. Our thoughts become quieter. Light gets in. This light that I'm representing as the sun really represents our hearts in the spiritual journey. We, something gets through the density of our own, thought, uh, our own thinking. It's very hard for the sun, although the sun does penetrate the fog to some degree, it stays very dense and gray within the fog. But once we start moving outside of it, it lightens up. You start seeing through that. In a moment, you may catch a glimpse of something far off, further than you've ever seen before in your life, a clarity that is unmistakable, a clarity that surprises you, called an insight. And that really shatters your world that you've lived in that has been so opaque and so uh, covered with your own mentality. And so uh, the, the question, the task before us here is to walk through this thing. Now, it's not your privilege or your duty or it's not your task to ask how long do I need to walk and how close I am I to this getting out of this bank. Those are questions. This is where the analogy breaks down. But those are questions that actually reinforce the fog bank. Those are questions that come from the disposition of, of ignorance. Those are questions from ignorance. And in what we're talking about here is that you're just doing it. You're just, there's the will of the heart and the intentionality of spirit to move out of fog. How long it takes is not a question. Everyone who walks makes it. Okay? Certified. You don't have to worry about that. So just, if we just keep walking. But we have to walk in a straight line or we're just going to keep circling back into the deeper levels of the fog. So to understand that as we walk, we, our mind should be getting a little quieter. It shouldn't be so filled with ideas and so uh, self-centered as it used to be. In fact, uh, the eye thought gets a little clearer, cleared up there, which allows the heart to become active, to become, to become engaged in life. And as that ability to engage in life, uh, it's unmistakable. It's not always pleasant because when the heart opens, it opens to the pain of the world and you feel that pain. But there's no question that feeling the pain of the world far exceeds the density of your own thoughts in which you felt nothing except your own neediness. And so even though it hurts to come out of the fog, in the beginning, it's an, it becomes very clear to all of us that we aren't going to turn back and go into a deeper quagmire. We aren't going to reverse our direction. Now, uh, so it's not our task uh, to ask our position within the fog, and, and it's neither our task to make this I thought a project. Okay, I've got to get out of my eyes, the sense of I, I, not E-Y-E, out of my, the sense of me. I've got, that's my project, and that's how, I'll, that's how I'll move this whole spiritual journey, out of the ego. And it's something that it really uh, puts the hair on my back up a little when I hear that because it's, it's completely wrong to think that we are walking out of ourselves. I mean, it doesn't even make sense when you say it matter-of-factly. It's to understand 
ourselves, not to get over ourselves. It's to understand what the sense of self is. It's to understand what, where the I thoughts come from and why they're so uh, adamant when they do arise within us, why they demand so much attention. It's not to get over them or to abolish them or to somehow uh, be finished with ourselves. They have a legitimacy that we begin to understand as we understand what they are and how they arise. And so when, the, when you see their legitimacy, when you see the place that they naturally play within all of our lives, then, okay, so we can work with that. But you also know at the same time simultaneously that uh, what, what it's referring to is a fiction. It doesn't refer to a fact, a solid uh, entity in itself. It's a fiction. It's, it's, a, it's a location. It's a functional way to represent our location. But it isn't, in fact, a placeholder for something that is true and meaningful. So that's what dependent origination is supposed to do. It's supposed to show us how we live through the filters of me, convinced that the me represents something that it doesn't. And it shows us how those, that formed, how, the, how that idea of me formed, and how it's perpetuated through our actions of body, speech, and mind. And as we become more familiar with its operations and how it moves, which is understanding the chain of dependent origination, then we can also settle very comfortably outside of it, even while we're in within the functional representation of it. That is, the, the sense of clarity, of being outside the fog, doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't any fog left in our area, but that there's a, there's a spaciousness that holds the, the confusion, but is not itself confused. And I will try to explain that as we go on here. Now, uh, it's important to understand, I think, uh, that we struggle, or the way I was trying to, I was trying to align the journey uh, in the last talk was, uh, and I'm, I usually try, I, I often try to speak about it in just slightly altered ways than I've talked about it in the past, just so that it throws you off a little bit, so that you have to reshuffle your organization of the Dharma and relook at what the Dharma means. So I spoke about it last time. I'd like to speak about it this time as well. As the reason that we struggle is because we live as bystanders to the present. We live as if we are having the experience of the present, but we ourselves are sort of outside the present, sort of looking in at it. And I don't know about you, but much of my life, I always felt like I was outside of life, which, of course, since all of life arises within the present, it's understandable why most of us feel as if we are outside of life looking in at it. It's sort of you're a bystander to it. So it's happening out there somehow, and that I'm sort of sectioned off from it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but... It was, it was a real motivation for me to understand why that sense of being outside and the toll it was taking on me, what it was. What, why, why would I feel outside of, of living situation? And even, even at the most elementary way of looking at it, we, sh we should know that we're a part of the living, a part of life, that life is arising and that the sense of here, the sense of this being is a part of that arising. And yet in some ways it, it felt as if I, was, I wasn't a part of it. And egoically what we will learn with independent origination is that the territory of the ego is just that. It's the, it's outside, it lives outside of the present. It has to. It has no strength within the present. It has no definition within the present. The way it defines itself is to stay in movement to time. And so, since time is a conceptual idea within the present, 
That means that all thoughts of past or future are thoughts arising within the present. So time and the present, the t you might say time arises out of the present as a thought about something that occurred or is yet to occur. But itself doesn't represent any truth within the present. It's an idea of something going forward or something that has been. And so when you, but that's the field, that's the territory, that's the terrain of the ego. That's where it lives. It lives within that sense of time. And so naturally, the sense of separation is going to feel as if it's outside of life, outside of the living situation, because it's not. It's thinking about life. It's thinking about life in terms of what it's known life to be or what it expects life to become. So you're going to have this feeling as if you're not quite there. That is an important feeling because as you do deal with all the other struggles in our life, all the emotional difficulties and all the resistances and all the stressors in your life, that remains. And that's an intrinsic part of the spiritual journey. And as you start dealing with and have a deeper intimacy for what struggle is, your antenna for what struggle feels like will grow in sensitivity and you'll come to that one sense, I can't, it's not, it's not happening to me. It's happening, I'm outside of it. And that's an irritation that the heart cannot stand. Why? Because it's in the fog bank. It isn't activating the heart. It's distant to the heart. It's separated from the heart. The heart is life itself, right? All, of the, all the thoughts about life are happening like as an external observation of what life is. But the heart doesn't work from an externalization. It works from, an, from the internal abiding, the life itself. So that's why it feels as if we're so confused about why don't I love? Where is this love that I keep hearing about? Where is this caring? Where is this compassion? If it does come through the density of the fog, it usually has in concerns about oneself. I love myself. I care about myself. I don't really care about anyone else. Because the idea of separation is part of that fog, is part of that density that we live within without ever checking out or understanding what it is or why we have come to believe ourselves to be distant from all of this. So I want you to get a, a feeling uh, how this sense of self is formed. It's formed from time, the belief in time. It feels as if, the ego feels as if it's in motion. The fact is, the truth is, There's no such thing as motion. Everything is absolutely still. Everything that's in motion, it's like looking at individual frames of a film. When you get them running, it looks as if that person is actually in movement, but they're not in movement. And so when it's misunderstood, we think of this as being what life is. When we understand what movement really is occurring, it's just the movement of thought. That's why this seems as if it's all in movement. Then we begin to understand the disposition of reality in itself. So that's pushing you a little too far too fast, I understand. So let's go back to uh, let's go back to dependent origination and pick up this second link called sanskara. Now, it's interesting that mental formations is also the fourth aggregate. For you who are Buddhist wise, you'll know that the aggregates, the five aggregates, are, are clumps of, of identific identification. Like the body, you know, most of us feel as if the body is me. That's a, it's a, it's a collective way that we perceive ourselves uh, from different aspects of mind and body. And one of those ways that we begin 
to perceive who we are is because of the mental formations that arise within us. That proves that we are alive because I have thoughts, said Descartes. And so much of the way that we assert ourselves forward in life is because we realize that we're having the experiences and mind states about life. That's where we claim our, our reference point of who we are and, and what I am. So when we start looking at these karmic formations, and the reason they're called karmic formations as well as mental formations is that we know where we are because we've been in similar places in the past. And so the memory of those places invite a reference or an orientation to the present. It doesn't have to be in the same room, but you know what a room is. You know what walls are. You know what a floor is. You don't have to have the same floor or the same room or the same ceiling. But when you come into a room, you have a complete understanding of what that particular shape and disposition is. And so it is with each aspect of life. We already know what it is because we can generalize out from the past so that we have an orientation to the present, even though in the present, We've never had this particular experience before. And so that karma, that momentum of the past, gives us a disposition to the present. Now the disposition to the present is, what does it do for us? It gives us an orientation to life, right? If everything, if everything felt disorienting, we wouldn't... I mean, we'd never go anywhere because it'd be too frightening, right? Because everywhere I went would be completely new. I've never seen this before. I'd have no idea or, or understanding of what or how to move through this. We would just sit down and, and be befuddled. But because we have had similar situations, can generalize out from those past situations into the present moment, we get an orientation from that. That allows me to know you. It knows a male from a female, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, the important point of this is that although we've never experienced the present as we are now experiencing it, we think we have. I mean, look, this is Tuesday night. Many of you have been here successively a number of times. You have a complete orientation to being where you are. You know how long or about how long the talk will last and you know what happens after that and you know you, you have a whole sense of what this moment is about in relationship to having come to, to it before. And yet you've never been here before. Not now. And so you can see how compelling these karmic forces are in us to give us the certainty that I know Tuesday night as well as I know anything, and so don't tell me I've never been here before. Did you know who was going to sit next to you? Did you know what I was going to say? Did you know the temperature of the room? Did you know any experience at all for certain? You see, you didn't. It's all disorienting. But to keep it so that it's very tight very bound, very certain, our minds go out and extrapolate from the past. I know all about this, we say. And that's ignorance. It's simply ignorance. You see, the, the field on which formations grow is ignorance. That's the necessary condition from which the formations can arise. Mental formations, the assurance that you know where you are, requires the terrain of ignorance. The terrain of ignorance is not looking as if it didn't know, it's looking as if it knew. That's what ignorance does. And to invite an unknown into that, to invite a curiosity into that, which is really the, how this whole thing gets transformed back into the spiritual, back into the present, is that you really don't know what this is, this moment. And to live with a kind of, it's a little, it feels a little disorienting, but it's also so wondrous 
like the Walt Whitman poem I read. So vast, so mysterious, so wondrous that to live in wonderment is so much more fulfilling than to live with certainty. That after we expose ourselves again and again to this wonderment, you don't want to go back to certainty. You have no use for it. It's like going back to third grade. And when you're third grade, that's really exciting because you haven't been to that grade. So let's look at dependent origination and meditation. Because what I'm trying to show here is that although these sequences occur instantaneously as conditions arise, other conditions, that they can also be uh, undone or unfixed or unlinked, let us say. It requires each of us to do that on our own. You have to want to unfix it. You have to want to break it apart. You have to want to break the links. You have to want to know what I'm talking about, basically. Like, what is he talking about? To keep it conceptually or intellectually doesn't do anything. In fact, it builds a deeper fog bank. Because now, not only do you know all about your life, but you know all about the Dharma, too. Right? And so there's no way to get in. There's no way for the sun to, to... So that's why this sense of self, this independence, this sense of self-empowerment independence is at the heart, is at, at the center of Dharma. And so to look at these links and to take, well, what does it mean? Okay, well, let me look at mental formations, you know? And that's really what I'm trying to do when I'm giving you this mirror exercise. All right, for the homework, I ask you to stand in front of a mirror. Now, you stand in front of a mirror, so what? I do it every day or whatever. I know everything about what I see. <laughs> okay, so let's stand in front of the mirror and release the need to know anything about what that figure is. Because what we're seeing is not even ourselves. We're seeing a reflection. The reflection in the mirror holds a form. It holds color and shape. That's what it holds. It doesn't hold a person. It doesn't hold separation. Everything you bring to that reflection is something that's in you that you have transposed onto it. The reflection itself doesn't contain your age. It doesn't contain your gender. It doesn't contain anything that you know or seem to know about yourself. Now, can you stand in front of the mirror and have that kind of clarity, that sort of emptiness of appearance to yourself? And you'll see how difficult it really is. I mean, it sounds, oh, sure. I can just, just see, just seeing what is there. And watch how quickly what is there becomes you. And all your history comes forth, rushing forth onto that image. Now, what I would like to do is to show that when we're facing the mirror, we're really, it's really two mirrors facing each other. And if you've ever done that, if you ever snuck a mirror in front of another mirror, you know that the, it just keeps reflecting back and forth. And if I, as a boy, I was always trying to get to see how many reflections it would do back and forth. Well, all I can say was infinite, right? I mean, there were numbers, but it was because of the distortion of the glass that it was limited, not because that the reflections stopped. They just kept going. So when you, when the sense of I, me, what I know myself to be, stands in front of a mirror, there's a, there's a continuation of reflections. First of all, you see me. That's what I see in the mirror. And then, so the mirror is recti, re, reflecting back me. Although it's coming from you, it's still 
seems to be in the reflection. And then you start going, oh, that's me, and look how old I'm getting. <laughs> so now you're taking what the mirror has shown you and you're adding another layer of reflection to it. And then you just keep doing that infinitely, right? And so that gives you duration, that gives you a sense of longevity, that gives you a sense of past, that gives you a sense of everything. It gives you a sense of perspective of yourself to others. It gives you everything. Now let's look at some of these multiple reflections. I just want to give you a sense of how quickly these mental formations arise and impose themselves layer after layer upon one another. But before I do that, I want to encourage how to practice with that so that it doesn't get you too upset, which it can. So I want you... The first thing we have to do is just relax with whatever we see. And don't talk back to it. Just see, just see what is being reflected. Don't add anything to what the reflection is showing. Nothing. In other words, just allow yourself to be quiet with what you see. Okay, if you want to step out of dependent origination, you just did. What's the way? What's the root? By being still with whatever it is you see. Not encouraging it forth. You're not what we do is we look at it and say, oh, I've got to get over this image. That's like, I've got to get over myself. I don't want to see myself. I've got to just see it as shape and form. So how do I do that? When I, every time I look, I see myself looking back. You don't. You can't get over yourself. You're just quiet with yourself. Just being quiet with yourself. There will always be some sense of recognition of that image, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't have to be paramount. It doesn't have to be the only thing you see. So the first way is that what happens is the quieter we become, the more understanding we have of what it is that we're seeing and how the seeing arranges itself. When you're noisy with what you see, all you see is the noise, the reactivity, the layer upon layer of images that you are lacing upon that particular mirror. But as we get quieter, fewer images come forth and we begin to understand how those images are formed, the actual formation process of how those images set themselves up. That's insight. That's looking beyond the normal way that we see. And that Normal way we see is from noise. Insight comes from the quietude of not offering more noise to the mechanical images that we, per we perceive. Do you see? So access to insight is simply accessing the quiet and unlinking the disposition or the need to make something further out of it. We step off the path of noise and dialogue. We begin to see how things actually are created. The force of creation itself. Not just what is created and comments about what's created, but how it was created. The very system itself. Okay, so what's the first image that most of us sees when we look into the mirror? Well, appearance. And that's where 90% of our attention goes. The first reflection back is the appearance. Oh, gosh, I'm looking tired today. Or all of the different ways that we perceive ourselves and the appearance that is reflected back. And if you look at the world, what you see in the world, you will see approximately 90%, and that's giving you... 10%, I can't figure out what the other 10% would be, but that's giving you some leeway. You'll look out, you'll see appearances. You'll see what you want to see. You'll see how you want to see. You'll see 
the disposition of what you want to see. If you're feeling old, you'll feel, see other people who also look like they're old. Or you'll be envious of the young, or on and on. So appearance, to get the sense of how we have trained our eyes to perceive appearance. And then the evaluation of that appearance. Liking it or not liking it. And then the assertion of how that appearance should be. So from appearance comes the need to, what? Have a better appearance. Right? And then comes the comparison and judgment associated with all those appearances. So it's, real, it's important, I think, for you to get a sense of how, def- how we define the world in terms of that first reflective arc. There's a story in Buddhist time about uh, someone who just took robes and was sitting in front of the Buddha and he would just stare at the Buddha. He, all he would do all day long is stare at the Buddha and finally the Buddha got, I won't say annoyed, but I would be annoyed. <laughs> what are you doing, monk? I'm looking at such beauty I can't take my eyes away, said the young monk. And the Buddha says, you're not seeing me at all. If you want to see me, you have to see the Dharma. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. Not one who looks at the form sees the Buddha. The Buddha is not the form. And it's said that the monk went off and got enlightened from that statement. So I give it to you. <laughs> so to just to arrest, just to arrest on the reflective quality of appearance is very superficial for lack of a better word. And it doesn't invite much of a life of depth. It just keeps us very surfacy. And if we can maintain the level of appearance as being the central way somebody looks at us, then we can keep them from going deeper inside of us and seeing the pain that we feel about our own sense of self and our own sense of appearance. So we try to beautify ourselves so that, the, so that the conversation never goes more than skin deep. Never touches anything of real relevance because underneath we feel like a cavity of spirit. And so this, this need to keep our, our, our shape and our, our form in perfect, in perfect shape is a real weakness of our culture. I mean, just look at the advertising. All of that's appearances. Everything. In this culture, almost everything. Okay, so that's the first reflection back from this infinite number of reflections. We're just going to go through a few, okay? What's the second reflection back? The next thing (coughs) reflects back the body. The body. So what is the body, you see? Each of these reflections holds a deep level of understanding and intimacy with it if you're willing to move to a, beyond just the appearance of it. So when we look at the body, it looks solid, it looks hard. When we actually invite our attention into the body, we see space. We find enormous amount of space in there. If you invite that attention into the body without, as the Buddha said in the Four Foundations, without remembrance, that is, without the knowledge and remembrance of what your body is, if you invite a clarity of perception that doesn't carry what you know about yourself into that introspection, what you'll find is that you don't know what it is. It's a complete mystery. It feels like energy systems. And if we keep trying to lace it back to the anatomy that we learned in biology, it doesn't go that way. There's a deep, profound mystery of what the body is as we begin to look at it free of the knowledge that we have about it. 
And so this appearance of body, this second reflection of body, really invites a scrutiny and inquisition and inquiry that can take us far outside of the mundane and typical ways that we see each other. And certainly we see ourselves. See, we're really looking at what the nature, what, how experience, how perception forms from experience. I mean, it's not like experience is anything. I mean, every, we never really touch life. Have you know, did you know that? When you pick something up, you're not actually touching it. Your hands have electrical, neurological uh, neurons that go up to your brain that form an idea about what the hand is touching. You never actually touch it. What you're experiencing is the neurological assimilation of that sense of touch, which was an electrical response in your fingertips. You don't really touch life. We've never actually seen life. We've never actually heard it. It's all been assimilated in accordance with how our mind or how our brain, the disposition, the way we think it is, what we have been taught about ourselves or from others. So to actually bring our attention to bear, attention to bear upon the experience of breath, the body within the body, the breath within the breath. That is, what's the, what's the actual experience of body? Not just what we have known about the body. It gets us very close to that fact. So what's the next perception? These perceptions, like two mirrors facing each other, they keep reflecting back and forth to each other. The third reflection is the emotional quality, the mental formations of emotions or attitudinal assumptions. You know, you, when you look at that reflection, one of the things you'll feel is the feeling, the emotion you have about the reflection itself. And there's a whole disposition and readiness, emotional readiness, to elaborate upon that. And the mind will elaborate upon every one of these reflections. It's endless. But it loves this one. Therein lies, there's a whole depository of opinions about yourself that carry an emotional justification with it. And have formed themselves into an attitudinal disposition. And you know why you are that way. Because you feel that way about yourself when you look at your reflection or when you see yourself or just when you get up in the morning and know you're there. And that keeps us ensconced, encased, and captured within that frame of reference. And we are so content because why? It provides us orientation. It provides us a set of self-instructions about how we can behave given a situation, through our emotional history with that situation, and how we are within that situation, is I'm always failing or I'm always succeeding or whatever it might be. It gives us an orientation, so we're very comfortable staying imprisoned within each of these reflections. But freedom is freedom from that very disposition. And we have to be willing to walk outside of what the immediate reflection tells us about ourselves in order to feel and know that freedom. And you'll see that so much of your actions come from that motivation, from the motivation of the certainty of what, how you're lining life up in that moment. And the next action you take will come from the certainty of what you know life to be in that instant. And so even your actions, even moving forward, depends upon the karmic past and momentum of the push of what you are. 
So what's the next reflection? I like this one. This, uh, each of these will are separate talks in dependent origination. Uh, but we're going to get to what's called nama rupa, which is name and form. That is giving uh, experiences a name, classifying them, again, to give us orientation, is almost immediate. When you look out, immediately a word is generated from the appearance of what you see. And we classify those and we keep that sense of word, experience and word, so they move hand in hand with each other. Now what happens when you get quiet? The word doesn't arise quite as quickly, or it's not as loud, or it's not as demonstrative. And so even though you'll know what a chair is, it doesn't fill the whole chambers mentally. It doesn't cloud the clarity or awareness that can see it outside of what the word labels it to be. So you're not trying to get over the word or so that you don't know what each thing is. You're just prov providing a wider space, a wider opportunity for anything to be more than what we have known it to be. And so that's the, the recognition of name and form. And when you look in the mirror, you'll know what each thing is you'll have, because we will have named it to be such. And you might, you see, I mean, one of the reasons that death is so feared by us is because it takes us out of naming. Right? We lose all the words. And therefore, we've lost our orientation, our disposition. We've lost what life is meaningfully about. And so we invest a horror into that scenario simply because it invites quietude. It invites stillness. And so to see the world as it is, rather than what we have made it to be, that's the point of all this. And what dependent origination does is it allows us to see layer upon layer, reflection upon reflection, how we've built the world up in our minds to be what we know it to be. And therefore we can, in the, our willingness to be quiet with it, disassemble, disassemble that. And yes, there will be, often there is fear, associated with that because there is disorientation as this quietude arises. But it's not a disorientation and fear for long. What comes instead is a fullness, is an aliveness, is a completeness, is a wholeness that far outweighs the advantages of knowing in location what one thing is. And so then we can be, let each image stand as it will, but to see right through the images to infinity itself. Rather than to arrest each image as being meaningful in itself. You can see through them all to the infinite. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So we were talking about mental formations, you see. This is just what the mind does to events, to experiences. This isn't beyond anyone's capacity in here to understand. Don't say to yourself, oh, I haven't said enough. Do ask whether you're curious enough because curiosity is the driving force to this. If you want no part of it, you'll have no part of it. But if it's curious to you, do you want to walk outside the fog bank? 
you want to see with fresh eyes. So it has nothing to do. Many people, when they look in the mirror spiritually, say, well, I'm not pure enough. Well, I need certain qualities to be better able to. It's right there. You're looking right at it. Why do you need to be purer than just what observation shows you? You see it right there. You don't have to lose your anger in order to see the perception. You don't have to be saintly, a Mother Teresa, in order to understand what you're doing to that image. Just your willingness to see and look. And your curiosity, what's going on here? Okay. So if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to fumble my way through. Yes, sir. You said there's no such thing as emotion. Wait a minute, what? I'm, I'm a little hard of hearing. You said there's no such thing as emotion. Right. And uh, you made it sound like that might be outside the scope of this talk. Yes. Would you be willing to expand on that a little bit? Sure, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. I, um, uh, I, t- I talked about it uh, a couple of nights or uh, weeks ago when I was talking about this uh, in terms of the present, of now. I talked about the dead center of now as the unconditioned dead center. It is where all things are merged without a discrimination, without distinction. And from that, the first concentric ring, you might say, the first step, the first aura outside of that, that the unconditioned gives off. These are very, these are awful words. I'm, I'm just... Because none of this is actually how it is. But the first expression, I don't know how to say it, I just can't. But anyway, the first manifestation of it is awareness, the knowing quality, just the discerning, the absolute clarity, awareness. And from that, we keep stepping further and further outside to make something of what is being known through words, etc. And then we form several concentric circles later, we form in relationship to it. Now we have to hover and keep our distance from dead center because dead center, I'm not there. I'm, di- I'm indistinct. I don't have any prominence. I don't have any position. I don't have, right? So we keep wording ourselves outside as if we were outside and believing in the thoughts that generate the idea that we're outside. So we put a lot of interest or a lot of importance into the words that we use because the words we use keep us from the mergence that the dead center forces us. And there are times in people's practice when they will experience the dead center. Some uh, Sufi called it uh, uh, the glowing dark or the, uh, something like that. So that abyss at the center of self, right? The, the, the hole in the donut. Okay? There's no distinguishment there. There's only distinguishment around the rim of the donut where I can keep the whole thing going. So I'm not trying to scare you. I mean, that, that can be... You think, oh my God, you know, but it's not like, you know, but, but, but the point is that to live in this, in this frame of reference, you can't live dead center. There has to be some sense of organization of what's going on or you wouldn't be functional in the world. So I'm not trying to get you to dead center as the place to live because you can't live there. You have to live with some sense of recognition of what's going on at the same time you live completely emerged at dead center but also referencing 
So, so you live in, in both worlds, you might say. What Christ said was, the best way to put it, was you live uh, in the world, but not of the world. Or vice versa, I can't, <laughs> whichever. Uh, so that's about, is that okay? Okay. Yes. Okay, sure. Uh, so this is about the breath and dependent origination and the breath, and what I just elaborate a little more on that. Um, you, you, I mean, we start off and we think that what we're doing when we're on the breath is we're sort of forcing our attention to relearn how to stay focused on something, which is one of the qualities that we are doing in the beginning level of meditation. But there's something far more important that we're learning, and that is the difference between what an object is and what we say it is. As you begin to experience an object, there's a little monologue that's going on back there somewhere that says, oh, I'm doing pretty good, I'm on the breath. Now I'm not on the breath or I'm thinking about something. Or, you know, it just keeps weighing in in judgment about how well you're staying on task which usually isn't very well, okay? But what's happening is that slowly you're learning the difference, the distinction between what an object in, is in and of itself and what an object is when I say it, the words about that object. Now that distinction is going to become more and more prominent and subtle as the spiritual journey unfolds. In fact, that is the spiritual journey, really, is to understand the difference between what my mind says the world is and the living reality of that world, right? So it starts at the breath, but it moves. You can't just keep it there. For most people, it's not sufficient. You need, because we're so identified with, with the aggregates of life, the body, the mind, that's a consciousness, perceptions, that we keep claiming references with these bundled experiences like the body, which holds us in place as me. So as we start experiencing what the body is, free of that memory and knowledge, this starts, it, it starts dissolving your certainty of yourself starts dissolving. You don't know. It's not as if you just don't, you aren't as sure anymore. You know what? You're not as sure of your, as you, of your opinions either. Matter of fact, every manifestation of yourself, you, there's an unsure, you become unsure. Now that sounds like it would create havoc, doesn't it? It sounds like I would just get anxious everywhere because I had no orientation, because I had no certainty. Just the opposite occurs. What happens as this thing dissolves is that there is a stability of presence that arises in the absence of certainty. That stability of presence and its discerning quality is like a pillar. It's like this... That's right. It's a more dr- that's right. It's a more direct experience without the word. In fact, the spiritual journey is really the journey, as I've said many times, from noise to stillness. That's the journey it takes. It has to take that journey because as we stop infusing the word, world with the words that we offer it, we get still. That's the only alternative there is. And as you get stir- still more still, how you perceive the world changes automatically and how you perceive yourself changes automatically. So the whole thing follows suit through that simple orientation. Does that make sense to you? Good. Okay. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm quiet and I'm just the 
So when you're meditating, uh, it has, there's a very sensory quality to it, right? It makes you, it seems as if you are watching or you are perceiving. Okay, so let's look at it a different way. That's what it seems to be. Okay, what's actually happening is that awareness is freeing itself, giving much more space, and you actually are simultaneously can feel all the different perceptions, the sense doors coming in. You can, the whole of the consciousness is available from awareness and then there is some confusion from the sense of I which has always located itself somewhere within that sense data and so it's trying it's scrambling a little bit and trying to figure out what it is in relationship to what it is that's going on so what it does is it creates thought about what it is or or the thought can be the confusion itself that's good enough to locate it I'm a confused person now that's good enough it's located and so from that location, it claims reference as the watcher. What it actually is, is subtle noise of the mind that's speaking itself about what it sees as a disposition now of its entire consciousness rather than one sense door. You do not own hearing. Hearing happens. What do you need to do to make hearing happen? It owns itself. I don't want to scare you, dear. It feels like you're backing yourself off into a high dive. Seriously. Huh? Okay, so ask yourself quietly who is experiencing sound? What is experiencing sound? Is sound being experienced? being known by awareness, which is the only thing that can know anything. You see? So this is, this, this dialoguing that we're doing here is really the dialoguing of the spiritual journey and I honor what your, your, your desire to move along with it. I think it's, it's a noble question to ask. But don't let it disturb you, right? Just go at your pace where it feels like a natural question for you to ask. Okay, like, what is this? Who am I? What's going on here? Don't force that question upon you because you think you should understand it, okay? So this is done much more... You'll notice there's a certain moment in which the fog thins enough and you begin to see and you go... What's fog? What is this fog? What's ignorance? What's going on here? Why have I stayed so blind? You see that? That comes naturally to you. Naturally to you. And so if the questions aren't coming naturally, I just, I think they're premature. I think you're, I think that you're forcing yourself into a circumstance that fear could send you back so that you never come out again. All right? So if the questions come naturally, fine. My Dharma talks are meant to invite your natural questions forward. So that's what the homework is meant to do. If it doesn't work for you, move on to next week. Yes. Your heart, your heart is taking responsibility. Your heart is the, is the organ that knows that you're in pain and, and wants to put an end to it. Your heart wants the best for you. 
is another way of saying it. And so it wants, it's the thing that feels the world that's in pain. It wants the best for the world, knowing simultaneously that the world is a product of its own perceptions, its own being, its own way of looking. At the same time, simultaneous to that, it wants the world not to suffer. It seems paradoxical, but that's, that's how it feels. At the same time, the knowing, the, the equanimity of the knowing that it's everyone's fault that they're feeling that way doesn't stop the heart from yearning that the disposition was that people were out of pain. Okay? It also gives you a direction and way to know how to do that. Instead of blaming someone else for your pain, you take responsibility for it because you realize that that's the source of how the pain arises by not taking responsibility for it. So you go to the doctor, you go to the dentist, you do whatever you need to do. So we have to stop tonight. I'm going to thank you all for your attention. Next week we'll have a discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.